Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 16, 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets were gathered? you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not, did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing us together again as your people, that we can worship you, the one true God. We, uh, we pray that you would be with Luke uh, as he brings your word to us now. Pray that he would teach it um, faithfully and accurately. Pray that you would give us discerning discernment and uh, prepare us to go out from this place to, to follow you in every part of our life and to... Uh, to do your will in all the opportunities that, that you give us this week. In your name, amen. Uh, we have the opportunity to invite Luke back to teach us this morning. So thank you, Luke. Oh. <laughs> do you mind if I borrow this? Good morning. It's great to be with you all again. Some familiar faces and some, some new faces that I don't, don't think I've, I've met yet. So it's good to be back with you. I'm thankful to God that, uh, to be with you to worship this morning. And I'm, I'm really thankful. Where did Mark go? Mark, where are you? Thank you for being here, Mark, <laughs> my cohort brother. And Mark, our worship leader for this morning. Thank you so much, brother. You have us singing great things. Those are great things for us to be singing as we turn to this passage together now. So thank you. So uh, this morning, we look at a passage this morning about misunderstanding Jesus. And so often in the Gospels, it seems like every time you turn around, Jesus is being misunderstood. Uh, someone is either misunderstanding something about who Jesus is, uh, something about his teaching, or something about the nature of his kingdom. And what's more, it's often his disciples that are misunderstanding him. And in our passage this morning, that's exactly what's happening. The disciples are misunderstanding something that Jesus says to them. Uh, Jesus warns them about something, and they just they miss the point of what he's saying. And as we'll see, they not only miss the point of what Jesus says, but also the point of what he's done. They don't understand that Jesus had just done a work 
that had implications for how they should respond in that moment in their lives. They missed the implications of Jesus' work for their lives. But the disciples' misunderstanding here gives, gives rise to this great teaching moment for us where Jesus reveals why we sometimes misunderstand him, why we're sometimes distracted from what he intends to teach us and what we should do, uh, what needs to change in us. And so as we think about this for ourselves in our own discipleship to Jesus, um, you know, as those who read his words every day, you know, whether it's reading the Bible ourselves or whether it's here when the words of God are being preached to us and we're hearing them, all the time his words coming at us, as we think about that for ourselves, sometimes not hearing him, sometimes missing the point of what he's saying, and sometimes being distracted and then feeling the effects of that in our lives, there's great help for us here. And so our passage is going to answer two main questions for us. First, why do we sometimes miss what Jesus intends to teach us? And second, how does Jesus correct us and help us? And so as we'll see, there's some layers to those questions, but those two questions will give us some structure uh, for this morning. So before we dive into that first question, uh, let's get a bit of context here. So not long before our passage, uh, Jesus had just miraculously fed thousands of people, not once, but twice, <laughs> with a few fish and a few loaves. He does that once in Jewish territory and then again in Gentile territory. And then at the end of chapter 15, Jesus gets into a boat, crosses back over into Jewish territory for a brief return, and he has this run-in with the Pharisees and Sadducees. At the beginning of chapter 16, we get that part. And they come to test Jesus, as they so often did. Uh, you know, they, they say, okay, you're the Messiah. Show us a sign from heaven. Prove it. And Luke tells us that they did that to Jesus over and over again throughout his ministry. <clears throat> but to, to paraphrase Jesus' response to them, he essentially says, so you can look at the sky and tell when a storm is coming, but, but somehow you can't seem to look around you and see and tell that the Messiah is standing right here before you. It's not that your interpretive powers are broken. You clearly know how to use them. But for some reason, when it comes to me, you seem to suspend those powers. And so you are willfully blind. You're evil, you're adulterous, and so no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which seems to be the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was swallowed up by the great fish and then miraculously delivered by the power of God, so Jesus will be swallowed up by death and then only to rise again delivered by the mighty power of God. And Jesus is saying, that's the only sign you get, Pharisees and Sadducees. And then he leaves them. And then comes our passage. And so in the background of our passage, we've got 
feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, and then this encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as Jesus and the disciples head back across the lake into Gentile territory again, uh, that encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees seems to be on Jesus' mind. And so our scene begins on the shore. And so after rowing all the way across the lake, the disciples realize it hits them. It's like the bread. We forgot, we forgot bread. And it's that moment when your heart sinks and you panic and frustration comes at the same time. And, you know, it's one thing to catch a mistake early when it's easy to still do something about it, when it's easy to fix it. It's another thing to catch it only long after the fact when you can't do anything about it. And what's worse, for the disciples here, food is a pretty obvious need for life on the road. And the more obvious that mistake is, the more foolish we tend to feel. And so while they're feeling the sting of that mistake and they start to worry about the consequences of not having any bread, Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In verse 7, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. And so other translations make this part a little bit clearer than the ESV does. Um, the NIV and the NET both render the disciples' response here, uh, where we have, where we might have, uh, we have no bread. They render that it is because we brought no bread. And the NASB, even more explicitly, he said that because we brought no bread. And the reason for the discrepancy there is this little Greek word, oti, which can be translated as the Greek quotation mark, but it can also be the conjunction that or because. And so ESV goes the way of quotation marks, the other translations go the way of because. Both are valid options. But I think uh, the other translations are a little more helpful because uh, if, look at verses 11 and 12. I think because is more appropriate because of this. So Jesus says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And then verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to, be, to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching. And so those two verses seem to confirm that the disciples thought Jesus was talking about bread, namely the bread they forgot. And so you notice what's going on here. They think Jesus is rebuking them for not bringing bread. When they hear this warning of Jesus about leaven, they're thinking, oh, he's talking about this. He's mad because we just forgot to bring bread. They think he's rebuking them. And Jesus is actually warning them not about something they've done, but something others have done. And yet they hear this warning as though they were the guilty ones. And so I think the text is showing us here part of what distracts us from, what, from hearing Jesus. And it's this guilt that dwells on a failure. It's a sense of guilt that, that keeps getting hung up on a failure. And then you read everything in light of that. It's like they messed up. 
and they have this frustrating, embarrassing failure in their head, and it makes it hard to hear anything else. And I, th- I, I see that, and I think, yeah, I know what that feels like. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be haunted by a failure that just keeps nagging, and it won't leave, you, it won't leave me alone, and it distracts me when I read my Bible, and it distracts me from learning what I need to learn from Jesus. It distracts me from the good I know to do or should know to do, from loving my wife well, from loving my brothers and sisters well. And so maybe you know what that's like too. Jesus helps us here with that. But notice first, there's another part. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So when, when Jesus reminds them of how he fed thousands before, he seems to be reassuring them that they don't have to worry about not having bread, which means they were worrying about not having bread. They were worrying. And so not only were they feeling guilty dwelling on this failure about the bread, now they're also worried about not having it. And so here's a second thing for us that can distract us. It's worrying about a need. We see the void in front of us, but we can't see any provision coming. It's like you have this need and there's no help in sight. It doesn't look good and it doesn't feel good either. And you think, okay, what am I going to do? And fear and anxiety are, are, are loud and this thing just demands all your attention. And anything else that comes to us while that's in front of us is like, that's an interruption. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, not now. I got to deal with this thing. I got to get this taken care of. Jesus helps us with that too here. So remember, these are Christian struggles. These are Christian struggles we're talking about here. These are disciples we're looking at. There's one more here to see before we get to the root cause of all these symptoms that we're seeing. So while Jesus, with his mind set on kingdom purposes, warns the disciples of a real spiritual danger for them, the disciples miss that warning because they're preoccupied with this bread situation. And so here's another part of what distracts us. And worry often leads to this. A worldly perspective. A mind that is set on earthly, material concerns. Jesus' mind is set on kingdom purposes. The disciples' minds are stuck on this bread situation. But what did Jesus teach us about that? What, what does Jesus say about being worried and anxious about our lives? Worrying about food and drink and about what we will wear. Matthew 6 might be coming to mind. Don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. He taught us not to worry about any of those things. Why? He's got a list. (laughs) It's quite a few reasons. 
One, because life is more than food and the body is more than clothing, that is, we exist and have life for a far greater purpose than just staying alive. We exist to glorify God by knowing him and enjoying him forever. We exist to spread the kingdom in Jesus' name, to know and spread everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. We exist to the praise of the glory of his grace. Two, because look at the birds, look at the lilies. God takes care of little creatures and little plants that are far less significant than you whom he made in his own image. Number three, because which of you by worrying can add a single hour to a span of life? It doesn't do any good. Worry is powerless to change worry, (laughs) to change the problem. Four, because unbelievers worry about these things. This is what unbelievers do, not what Christians do. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Okay, so what should we do instead of worry? What should we do instead of worry about all those things? And we just heard it a minute ago. Mark, uh, this is so, so much of what Mark just did applies to this right now. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek to see the kingdom to enter the kingdom, to live according to the kingdom. And you think, okay, hold on, what's, what's the kingdom? It's the reign and rule of Jesus. It's his way. It's, it's the reign and rule of Jesus, the king. It's his way, his character, his righteous governance spread through all of life. Seek to belong to that kingdom and to live and thrive in that kingdom, to be an ambassador for that kingdom and to hail and honor the king. So we seek that. And as we do, God will provide for our needs. So that's, that's where our minds should be. Not on the basic material concerns of life. I love the way Jesus talks about that. It's like, that's beneath you as a Christian. That's small. That should not distract you. We've got far bigger things in view. And so now we come to the root of the problem. What causes all these symptoms we're seeing, all these ways that we're getting distracted can be traced back to this one root cause. And Jesus reveals it to us here. He reads the disciples' reaction. He reads the guilt. He reads the worry. He reads the worldly focus and he lays his finger right on the root of the problem. He says, it's this. Look at verse eight. Oh, you of little faith. Little faith. Deficient faith. Weak faith. Unbelief. So what's behind this sense of guilt that keeps me dwelling on my failure? Unbelief. What's behind the nagging worry Unbelief. What's behind a mind that is preoccupied with material concerns and worried and anxious about its life? 
unbelief. Unbelief sees its failure and feels its guilt, but sees no help and no hope for itself. Unbelief worries and looks out into the void and has no assurance about whether help is coming or not. No assurance about whether there will be provision for itself or not. Unbelief does not even see the kingdom, let alone seek it or know its joys. And unbelief can distract us from what Jesus intends to teach us. Unbelief can cause us to miss what he's teaching us. And, you know, you just think about that. The very posture of my heart towards Jesus determines what I'm able to learn from his teaching. We may tend to think, well, if I'm having trouble understanding Jesus, I just need to read more. I just need to grow in my education. But in reality, it may be that unbelief prevents us. A fearful heart a fearful, doubting heart throws a veil over the eyes of the mind. And it blinds us. It obscures our hearing of God's word. But remember, Jesus says, little faith. Not zero faith, little faith. These are disciples. They're Christians. This is a Christian struggle, not an unbeliever's. So this happens to all of us. We all fall into this, as James says, We all stumble in many ways, all of us. So take heart. Because Jesus has even more help for us here. He does way more than just say, this is the problem. (laughs) He has more help for us. And this next part, this this was surprising for me. This just floored me. Uh, Look at verse 9. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive... And this is where I want us to focus in. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So Jesus thinks that remembering the feeding of the 5,000 should change the way the disciples are responding to that situation right now. He's saying, in effect, If you remembered the loaves, you wouldn't be worried right now. You wouldn't be worried about bread right now. So Jesus intends for his disciples to apply that work to their lives in faith, personally, in that moment. That's the lesson of the loaves. And yet, when he did that work, back in Matthew chapter 14, there was no explicit teaching. Neither Matthew nor Jesus leans over and tells us, hey, Here's how you should apply this moment. Here's how this applies to you personally. (laughs) We don't get that. Jesus just did the work, and that was that. We never get an explicit teaching about how, how this applies to our life until right now, until right here in Matthew 16, 9 and 10. That's amazing. It's like this part... This is part of what was lacking in the disciples' understanding. Part of, part of what was lacking in their faith is that they don't understand that Jesus has just done a work that has implications for your life personally right now. So if you're a Christian, the feeding of the 5,000 when applied to your life in faith should minister to you a calm trust in the face of need. 
And I realize as soon as I say that, Luke, easier said than done. I'll be the first to confess my own failure to learn that lesson very well. We all need to learn and grow in that. I love what uh, Anselm of Canterbury once said about uh, the Christian life of knowing God. He says it's faith seeking understanding. It's our faith that actively loves and trusts God is seeking to understand, seeking to know him more. And so if we should find ourselves worried in the face of need, it's probably that we're not remembering that time when Jesus fed thousands of people easily and there were lots of leftovers. Either that or we're, we're not believing that that event has any significance for my life right now. And I'm arguing from this text that it does and that that's exactly what Jesus wants his disciples to believe. That is exactly what he wants us to do and it's exactly what unbelief fails to do. It fails to understand that. But Jesus wants both his words and his works applied to our hearts, applied to our lives personally in faith. It's for you, Christian. It's for me. It's for our faith. Something that Jesus did on the plains of Galilee 2,000 years ago has significance for you and me right now, today, whenever we worry. That's amazing. And Jesus intended that work to change our response to the temptation to worry. Remember means more than just remember that it happened. If that was all it meant, the disciples would look at their teacher with very puzzled faces and say, yeah, we remember. What does that have to do with anything? They don't say that because they know it has everything to do with this moment where they are. Remember means take up Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and apply it to worry in the face of need. Apply it to your life in this moment. Believe it and live according to it. Live according to that remembering. Live in light of that remembrance. And notice, if, if this is true of the feeding of the 5,000, how much more of the cross Christian, remember the cross. Remember the absolute zenith of all Jesus' works, his death and his resurrection in power. And I just think about that and I think, oh, to live more consistently in light of remembering that. Remembering and applying that to my life and faith. To live in light of Christ crucified and risen for you for me and all that that means for us, all that that means for you and me. The guilt and the failures all born. Worries erased. A heart and mind that is fixed on the king and heaven with him forever. It's a beautiful picture. There's a beautiful picture of that in uh, Bernard of Cluny's 12th century hymn, and I keep, I keep some lines of this tucked in my Bible because I, I love this hymn. It's called Jerusalem the Golden. Just a few lines. There is the throne of David, and there from care released, 
the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast. And they who by their leader have conquered in the fight, forever and forever are clad in robes of white. So may God give us grace to remember the cross of Christ and to live in light of it. But now notice, after Jesus reminds them of his works and that they're not remembering nor applying those to their lives in faith, he rebukes them. He says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? In which I think this is a reminder to us that faithless behavior for a Christian is not only harmful to us, it's shameful, it's wrong. It's not right when we represent Jesus that way. It is wrong for us to represent Jesus in such a way that says he's not trustworthy. He is not deserving of my faith. That's wrong. He is completely worthy of all my trust. And I fail and I do something shameful when I don't show that. He is faithful. He is worthy of our trust. And so should we find unbelief in ourselves, may God give us grace to first own it, to say, yeah, that's me, I did that. That's mine. And then to hate it and confess it and be washed of it. To say from the heart with the psalmist, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And so this is the hard part, but it's good. It's a kindness. It's oil for our heads. Because now that that correction has been made and the lessons are learned and faith is restored and worries removed, Jesus, as the good teacher that he is, repeats his warning verbatim. Does not change a word. It's interesting. You would think he would change that part. Well, you guys messed this up. Let me fix that. Nope. I'm just, just listen. Now that all the distractions are gone, listen again. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they understand. And so as we take a step back and consider this whole scene, how does Matthew present the disciples to us here? It's like, how do they look to you? Well, first, they forget the bread. Then they worry about not having food. Right after they watch Jesus feed thousands of people twice, easily. (laughs) And yet, their present need overwhelms them. It seems like Matthew's presenting them to us in such a way that we come away thinking, they're acting foolish. They're being foolish. And you think, okay, why would he do that? because he wants us to see unbelief as foolish. He wants us to see weak faith as a ridiculous thing, as as something shameful, as illogical behavior, because it is. And by implication then, he's also encouraging us towards a stronger faith, to long for a stronger faith that doesn't cave every time trouble comes, but stands firm and endures 
with this calm trust and confidence in God. But lest we think Matthew's being unfair or harsh here, remember, Matthew's, he's, he's there. He's in the boat looking foolish. He's wearing this shame. And so I think this is also a reminder for us that weakness in faith, as we've said, is a Christian struggle. It's one we all have, and it's a struggle that Jesus knows we have, and one that he speaks to remedy. And so may God give us grace to understand not only the words of Jesus, but to understand the works of Jesus and how to apply them to our lives in faith. And may we live remembering Christ crucified and risen for sinners, for you and for me. So let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for this story. Thank you for uh, the failures of the disciples that remind us that we're not alone in our weakness. It's, it's not only us. That's uh, a kindness from you. And we receive it and we say thank you. And we pray, increase our faith. Help us to love and trust you more than we ever have before. Help us to stand firm in faith. And help us to understand increasingly, day by day, all the works of Jesus, what they mean for our lives, how it applies to every moment of our lives, and may it keep us standing firm in faith. And may your name be glorified in it all. May Jesus' name be glorified in it all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.